Um, not part of the furniture yet, but over the next couple of months, we will try to do that. Um, we are excited this morning to have you, and if it's, if it's your first time here, uh, while we were praying this morning, because every Sunday morning we pray for new people, and, um, and as they arrive, that they would have an experience of God, and that they would meet Him, maybe for the first time. Uh, but God spoke to me so clearly this morning as we were praying that if it's your first time, that it wouldn't be that you, it would be like your first day at school. Who can remember that? Anyone? <laughs> <It's> terrible. <laughs> I didn't have a good day, my first day. Uh, but that it would be the first day of, of the rest of your life. Uh, because the gospel transforms and it changes you from the inside out. And that when we have new people in our community step in, that that would be the type of experience that they would have. That yes, it's welcoming and warm and hospitable, but that this place is going to in some way change me. In some way I'm going to become myself more fully. And that that's going to be something I'll remember for the rest of my life. So it's, it's something I want to pray through as we continue and grow as a team in this place. Uh, we are busy with a series called Grace Files, and I was not here last week, but I caught up uh, on Maggie's sermon on our podcast, and so if you're not signed up yet, uh, if you miss a Sunday, you can just go and listen to it, um, and you can be included in what we're communicating. Um, and it's been a great journey. Clinton shared a very personal story uh, of a friend that he knew a couple of weeks ago that set it up for us, and, and Maggie shared very powerfully last week. Um, about God's grace. Whatever your position is on the grace of God, um, you have to understand that it is very important how you understand what grace is, what it means, and also who it is. It's central to our understanding of the gospel. And as we continue this morning, uh, we pray that it would be something that would shift in you in terms of your understanding of who God is. Our core scripture, it comes out of John 1, verse 16 to 17. And of course, when you read this at home, try and read the whole uh, book to give you context of what John is communicating. He starts off in John 1 with saying that in the beginning, the Word was God, the Word was with God, the Logos, the opinion of God was there before time began. And then he goes into this incredible, really, uh, this is probably my favorite chapter in the whole Bible, John 1. Um, this mountaintop view of who God is and, and really coming to a place earlier, a little just before the scripture, he says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, as the message says. And then he continues on. He says, out of his fullness, out of God's fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Other translations say grace upon grace upon grace. It's like a, a good cake. What are, those, what are those cakes where you just take all the reject cakes and throw it on top of each other and then put a little bit of jello on top? What's that? A trifle. That's what I think. I think in desserts and food. And I think of this incredible trifle. My mother-in-law makes a beautiful trifle. And this layer upon layer upon layer of carbohydrates and refined sugars. And um, it's like God's grace is never-ending, super abundant, more than we could ever think and and we read in Romans uh, 5.17 that through the, the, the effort or the failure of one man, all of humanity suffered, uh, fell, experienced darkness. But through Jesus, 
over and above we have received God's incredible grace, righteousness, and victory over pain. And so we, we have a new reference with Christ. It's not like it was just an add-on, but it's the revelation of who God is in Jesus. And to be Christ-centered is to be grace-centered. That you cannot be Christ-centered and not understand or grapple with or wrestle with grace. And to know grace, you need to understand that grace is not just a concept or a mood of God, but it is the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, is grace itself. And so you can't separate it. I love how the Scriptures just open up for us that, um, that God is not just um, this deity sitting in the heavenlies, but that He is a personal God and that He embodies things like truth and things like love. God is love. And things like mercy and things like faith and hope. That is who God is. It's not just the word describing Him. He is the very essence of those words. And when I think of grace, I think that God is the very essence of the word grace. Amen. <laughs> so excited about that personally. I hope you get there. Grace is truth and truth is grace. That these two things aren't the yin and yang of God. It's not the good day and the bad day. Truth doesn't just put us in our place so that grace can be a band-aid to help us recover afterwards. It's not a little serum we can just rub over the wound that truth brought. Truth is grace and grace is truth. These two cannot be separated because the truth is that God is a God of grace. Nothing else. Nothing else. That he's not, he's not in attention with himself, whether he's going to have a bad or a good day. And so this has formed the foundation of this text. In the beginning of the year, I really asked myself and I said, Father, what do you want me to experience as a communicator, as someone who sits in the inside and outside? And he spoke to me through as Kingfishers Catch Fire, a book by the late Eugene Peterson, the author of The Message. And it says this, it's a summary. The Christian life is the lifelong practice of attending to the details of congruence. Congruence between ends and means. Congruence between what we do and the way we do it. Congruence between the sermon and what is lived in both preacher and congregation. The congruence of the Word made flesh in Jesus with what is lived in our flesh. This faith journey of ours is bringing alignment to the truth of God visible through the grace of God. That when we understand the context of Jesus, it changes the very smallest detail of the way we live. And so they be, over time, alignment occurs between who God is and who we are. The challenge is, is in a dualistic mindset, we split those two things into a Sunday acknowledgement, religious practice, and a Monday reality where we step into the world and actually have to live out this faith that transforms us from the inside out. That is the challenge. And so for me, God has been speaking to me and saying, AJ, don't communicate something here that you're not living out yourself. Don't paint a picture of the Christian life to people who observe you instead of just living it out in your personal life. And even more than that, come to a place where you can confess in public and do good in private. Instead of doing good in public and confessing in private. That people would know that if they get to know you, that, 
the things that you speak about and the visible pictures that you share, whether it's on social media or whatever, is actually a reality in your own life. And I am challenged with that because often the, the bad pictures of our life we don't want to share. You know, the, the sailor light that we see, it's just me in the mirror. I don't have a great desire to share that with the world. <laughs> and you're happy about that. <laughs> we become very selective about what the world observes but I think God calls us to an authenticity and a transparency. And so one of my goals is that every time I share, that there would be something of a confession in the way I communicate. That, Friends, I am just on the same journey you are, and some of you are ahead of me. And that we are in no way projecting something that is different to who we are. And I pray that what that does is, is it doesn't just make me look good or humble, but that it positions you in a place where you can do the same. Um, I've often preached incredible messages and I get home and my wife just looks at me <laughs> without a response. Because it doesn't always play out in the way that we give it visibility. It's those closest to us that often know that exactly as it is. Our point of departure this morning is that we have grace to fail. And where there is no grace to fail, there is no grace to try. Where there is no grace to fail, there is no grace to grow. Where there is no grace to fail, there is no grace to learn. I grew up in a household where my father was very driven, worked full-time in, in the military space, and so he always told me that winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. And that second place is the first loser. <laughs> and so I grew up with this mindset that if I wasn't winning at anything, then I was a loser. And that it was so important that everything was successful in my life. Almost to the point where success became a burden. Where I started to self-destruct in order to still be in control of my failure. Because I developed a fear of failure. And maybe this morning as there's a readjustment in your, in your inner life, you might experience something of that wrestling with failure in your own life. The things that you've failed at. And I don't just mean the things that have happened to you. I mean the things where you have made a decision not to be successful. We have self-sabotaged in your own journey. And the good news this morning is that there is grace for you. And that there is grace in your failure. Not just in the past. Hear me this morning, this is my heart, but that we would approach failure in the future in a different way. I think there's something of a theology of failure. Where we develop an understanding of what failure is. And I find that most often than not, we, we discover and we wrestle with failures, not in our true self, but in our false self. In what the world communicates we need to be. That's the area where we fail most. But... It's important to recognize that failure in your true self, in God's purpose for you, is where it matters. It's not in the surface level things of our journey. We learn more from failure than we do from success. Is that not true? We reflect more when we fail. We find ourselves more when we fail. It's when we succeed that we just jump ahead and our ego grows and we celebrate things externally. But it's when we fail where we sit and we contemplate and we think about things deeply. 
Hide the ring in the cake, they said. It'll be so romantic, they said. Failure. Who's swallowed a wedding ring in the room? If it's you, we're taking you for lunch. <laughs> it's a unique thing. I have this story that in New Zealand, we got there about just over 11 years ago, and we, look at the table, don't look at my legs. Um, we started our journey as a young married couple, and uh, we, we salvaged things from the community, really, just to put in our house. We didn't have any money. We lived on, I felt like $50 a week that my wife could multiply in some brilliant way uh, into a meal, <laughs> seven meals. And, um, and so we lived on scraps, and, and I was doing some hard labor <laughs> in our reference or context in the mountains in Waitakere, and, uh, and part of it was to debush an area, and there was the scrap wood that laid on the side um, of the area I was working in, and so one day I finished a bit early, and I thought, well, since I'm so artistic and creative, I'm just going to take some of this wood and, and build a little table, coffee table, because we don't have one at home. And so this was the result, and I didn't realize that I had to walk three kilometers to the train station, get off, work three kilometers again to our house, uh, <laughs> which was painful. But that, that was the result of my little artistic experiment. And uh, it's the only table I've ever built, right? You, do you understand why? Or it's, I mean, it's not an oil painting of a little table, but it's good. When I look at it now, I'm like, mate, that's not, it's, it could have been the beginning of a carpentry career. But it didn't, it didn't, because I had a different opinion to my wife. When I brought this into the room, I was proud. I was excited. I was the man of the house. You know whether you're like Fred, Fred Flintstone, honey, I'm home. <laughs> I'm bringing home not the bacon, but the table. And we're going to just have so much coffee on this, and this is going to be, we're going to engrave it with our children's names one day, and all these romantic feelings. She didn't agree with me. She was, was the most terrible. Did you pick that up next to the road or did something drive over a tree or what happened? And we did keep it in the house. Uh, she covered it with a big cloth or something. <laughs> it was the hidden treasure in our home. And, and it started rotting apparently, which I never knew. But I just looked at it. I was so proud. And um, I didn't see my table as a failure, but she did. And then... You know, once a year you have this moment where you put things outside of the house that you're going to throw away. Every year, every year without fail, I would find that little table. And I would pick it back up, and I would carry it into the house and be so upset, put it down, and say, this thing is not moving. But today, I don't know where it is. I missed a year. I didn't concentrate. Or she woke up in the middle of the night and smuggled it out or burnt it. Uh, it's disappeared. It has a better home. Hey, maybe someone's using it somewhere that needed it. And so it's my little table. Um, I played rugby at the same time, as you can see, those incredible legs there. And um, uh, it was in the best shape of my life, actually, but... I went to New Zealand trying to pursue a career as an all-black rugby player. I thought that that would be the ultimate, to play for the all-blacks, and I think it still is. Uh, come on. And so um, the World Cup is coming up at the end of the year, and I'm so excited because I'm a Kiwi. Can't wait to watch it. My condolences before the tournament has started. 
but, um, but part of my dream was is that I would have played in Europe and all over the place and uh, was semi-professional at the time, but that I would become that. And so I went to New Zealand with this incredible, was married for about a week before we moved over to New Zealand and, and um, had this incredible pressure to perform this, and which later on developed into a fear of failure. Up until the point where I would literally um, go to training at night and um, be so scared that I wouldn't make the team so that I wouldn't get a contract so I'm going to provide for my new wife and future that I would just sit in the car and watch the team train um, and text my coach and say, sorry, mate, I have a bit of flu. <laughs> and, and then I'd leave the training after watching them train and being too scared to give it a go. I would stop at a, at a rugby field close to home and I would have a run on the pitch and roll around. It's ridiculous. In the mud. And then I think about it, how stupid it would have looked for people observing this guy coming clean, rolling in the mud, doing a few sprints. And then I'd go home pretending like I had a training to my new wife. Um, terrible. But real at the same time. And later on I had injuries and, and some of those injuries included children <laughs> um, and so I ended my professional playing career they're lovely by the way it's the best injuries I've had um, but aren't we always in that place as well where we feel that if we fail that we are failures and that we develop fear of failure from that place J.K. Rowling some of you are mad fans in the room uh, says, it is impossible to live without failing at something, unless you live so cautiously that you might as well not have lived at all, in which case you fail by default. I think there's a list of things we can probably put on that would say that I've failed in some ways by default because of my fear of failure. The scripture that God spoke to me this week is 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 to 10 in the Passion Translation. And please grace me and read this with me this morning. But he answered me, my grace is always more than enough for you. And my power found its full expression through your weakness. So I will celebrate my weaknesses. Celebrate my weaknesses. For when I'm weak, I sense more deeply the mighty power of Christ living in me. So I'm not defeated by my weakness, but delighted. Like Paul, are you, what are you smoking, man? For when I feel my weakness and endure mistreatment, when I'm surrounded with troubles on every side and face persecution because of my love for Christ, I am yet stronger. And this gripped me, for my weakness becomes a portal to God's power. It's challenging to read this if your goal in life is comfort. If your goal in life is success and making it, it is challenging to know that Paul got to a place on his journey, and we'll talk about it a bit later, where he recognized that his weakness in itself was somewhat of a gift because it helped him realize that he needed Christ in him and that he needed to be aware that his weakness became a portal to God's power. And it's interesting how life, not God, how life has a way of positioning us in a place where we become aware of our weaknesses. Life has a way of, 
of bringing things across our path where we realize that, that we are mortal, that we are flesh and bone. And even more than that, not just physically, but we are emotional. And that we're quite brittle. And the fact is that, that sometimes the smallest thing can break us. And that in that weakness and in that reminder of our weakness, God's power is the only thing that we can cling to. And some of you have been in life far more than I, and some of you are currently experiencing things that, that I would, might not ever experience. But may I just ask you this morning that maybe in this weakness, you can be more aware than ever of God's power inside of you, not outside of you. I'm a bit of an art fan, although I'm not creative, as you saw a bit earlier. Uh, but I do like looking at paintings, especially artwork that reflects back to Christianity and the origins of our faith and, and everything around Jesus. Any artwork that has Jesus in it, I'm a fan. Uh, this is The Last Supper by Giacomo Raffaelli. Happy I pronounced that. And it's The Last Supper, and Jesus is there on the right side when you face it. And right next to him is the character called Judas Iscariot. Do we know him? Yes. A frowned upon figure <laughs> from the 12. Probably not cheered on the most. And in most artworks, you would see him holding a little money bag. And we journeyed through that in Easter. But there's always this depiction and this tagline of the mistake that he made, of the fact that he sold out Jesus. And, um, and obviously right next to him, you can see a man with a large knife. That's Peter, right? As he's ready just to fight and conquer and cut off ears and take over the world. Now, both Peter and Judas failed significantly, especially in their relationship with Jesus. Am I right? Um, in a lot of ways, Peter failed more times than Judas did, except there's something of a divine context in Judas's failure. I think Judas has a bad rap. You look at the next one, it's similar. On the right hand, again, you have the Last Supper, and Judas is here at the back holding his little money bag in case he loses it. And on the left hand, you see the ceremony of the washing of the feet, where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And again, on the right hand corner, you have Judas, uh, often depicted as a redhead, which I don't understand. I'm married one, and she's beautiful and more lovely. Uh, but in all both of these pictures, you'd see that they don't, Judas does not have a halo around his head. Um, he's not celebrated by the artist in any way or form. He doesn't appear to be divine in any sense of the word. Who are the biggest losers in the Gospels? Judas or Peter or both? I read a little bit later in Matthew 26, verse 50, where Jesus is just about to be handed out, and Jesus replied and commented to say that he just looked at Judas at the time, possibly, and uh, Jesus said to Judas, do what you came for, friend. And then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. It's as if Jesus obviously know, knew that it was Judas who was going to betray him, and earlier he has that conversation around the table where he makes it very clear um, in, in, in common language, that Judas would be the one to do it. And everyone knew it at the table. Um, yet when it came to that moment, there was something that needed to happen. It was almost like a mistake 
that needed to happen so that everything would work out in the end. I'm not saying, and just as I said earlier, that God sends things across our path to test us, to mold us, to shape us, because I think that if Jesus allows things in our life, and whether He sends them, if His intent is to hurt us, it's not the God revealed in Christ. And that God doesn't just do things so that we would turn into the people that He desires us to be, but that God wants to reveal who we truly are in the image of Christ. And that life has a way of challenging us in such a way that we don't have any other way to turn but to turn towards the gospel and say, God, show me in this who I truly am. Let me go of the false self and help me discover the true self, the man that I put on every day. See, both of these characters were both in community. They were included. They were both disciples. They both were, their feet were washed by Jesus. They ate together and they were included. Just think about this for a moment, that while they were there, Jesus washed both their feet, knowing that they were going to betray him, knowing that there was going to be failure on both of their lives. But he still included them. Would we do that if we knew people in our lives that were going to hurt us in the future? Would we still include them in a meal and in a feet-washing ceremony? Potentially not. If you had dinner with a criminal of the future in your life, would it change things if you knew what they were going to do to you? And don't we just see it from that angle, but would it change things if you knew that you were going to hurt the people you were sitting around the table with? So I think God communicates something powerfully in both of these lives, and that even though both of them would end up going into moments of failure, Judas would have ended his life, but that both in some divine way fall into the purpose of God, the future and the time that we sit in today that we can reflect on. You see, Judas left community because of the guilt and the shame of his activities. And I think we can often do that at the same thing because community is very similar to God in the sense that it reveals who God is. But when we are successful, a lot of times, we move out of community because we've made it. And we bought a house in a different suburb, and now we have a new family there. And it's as if success makes us more selective of the people we spend time with. Whereas failure positions us in a place where we are more open for others who fail themselves and for community. It's often when we fail that we draw closer to people around us. We desire to be around others because somehow we desire to be close to God. And I feel that God is most embodied and visible in the context of community. When Judas isolates himself, he separates himself because of his sin, because sin separates. He then isolates himself in isolation and ultimately alienates himself outside of the context of community. Don't we do that sometimes, is that we separate ourselves from groups of people. If we're long enough on our own, we become isolated, which so many people are, and eventually we're just that person that people reference to that are walking next to the road, that crazy person. We alienate ourselves. Whereas community is the context of our healing. Whereas I want to know that I'm in a place that welcomes people who fail. 
And I think the challenge is in the context of what grace is and what it means is so often we can create this image in a grace community where everything's just fine. Just get over it. Jesus died for you. He rose again. You're victorious in Christ. You're more than a conqueror. And all those things are true. But in that, what we're communicating is that there's no space for failure. And that there's no space for making a mistake. And that there's no space and that there's no grace that, that even the failures of your future will not define you. And I think that's what the gospel does. It is, gives us grace for failure. It's countercultural. Because it's in the context of that that we discover what true value is in terms of our purpose. Peter then goes on, and, and earlier in the Scriptures, or just a bit later, Jesus references what Peter is going to do. And I think what we've done is we've made Judas this enemy, and we've made Peter this hero, because Peter built the church. But there's something you have to discover in this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who am I? They replied, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he looked at Peter and said, what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And there's so much in that statement. And then Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. He renames him in that space. He says, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Upon what rock? Upon the revelation that Jesus is who God is. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the resemblance of the Father. That is the rock. Peter is not the rock. Peter is renamed after the rock, but the rock is the message that God is a God of grace, that God is like Jesus, and Jesus is like God, that there's no separation between the two, and that Jesus comes to reveal the very character, the very nature of who God is. That is the rock upon which God builds His church. If He built it just on Peter, then we would fail three times. And we would deny the Father. And we would not resemble the Father. And there's significance in the fact that He denied Him three times because often what we do in our creation of a space is we deny the Father. And we deny the true self that is above our physical success and failures. Peter had a different outcome, but in essence, he was also a failure. But through his failure, God built his church, he achieved his outcome. So how do we as a people in 2019 embrace failure? Isn't that exciting? <laughs> I think the first thing we have to do is surrender control. I think it's absolutely important that any spiritual guide, any, any, any mystic would sit with you and say you need to die <laughs> to yourself daily. You need to pick up your cross. You need to surrender what you think is important in this life. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't care for you. It means that He does. Because He knows that if we surrender in this place of isolation about my happiness and my joy and it takes me out of the context of community like it did with Judas that would end in death because that's the outcome of separation from community 
So we shouldn't take it lightly if someone leaves a church community, if we haven't even spoken. Because it's important that they're in community. Because if they leave this one, they need to join another one. You can't just leave people in that space where they just exit and they don't want to answer your phone calls or talk to you or respond to text messages. <laughs> it happened to me a few times. But that you would have comfort in the fact that they are integrated in community. But what this world does is it positions us in a place where everything is about me. It's about my success. It's about my life. It's about my significance. It's about my relationship with God. I think it's one of the biggest traps we could fall into in the context of a God that is community himself. We somehow think that we can experience him best in isolation. Like the monks, we go into the mountains and go and hear from God while we are amongst him. Living and walking, examples of God Almighty sitting next to us, living in us, living in them, the best way to see Jesus is to see Him in flesh and bone right next to you. Community. Surrender control, serve His purpose, subdue the way of the world. We know the context of denying yourself. In Matthew 16, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What is this denying? It's the denying of your false self. It's this denying of what significance could look like if you achieved it on your own. It is not the denying of your true self. You see, God's not against you. And neither does he want you to be crucified every day. That is rubbish, and it's not the heart of God that you need to endure self-inflicted pain so that you can be successful and cleanse yourself of impurities. When Jesus died, all died. When he said it was complete, he proclaimed it over your life, year in 2019, you are complete in spirit, in Christ. And what we do is, when we take up our cross, it's the same as the rock. It's a proclamation of the complete work of the cross. It's the cross that he carried that I lift on my shoulders and proclaim. It's the complete work. And then I can find my true self. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit? What? His very self. What the gospel does is it draws us close to our true identity, to our true selves. And when we carry the finished work of the cross, we embody it. We become it. And our true selves has the capacity to break free from the confines of what success is in a worldly terms. And so we need to surrender control to God. Lord, may you take the five goals I've said for 2019, I've already broken three of them. I just take them away from me. My life is yours. Pick up your cross and follow me. The second thing is we need to serve his purpose. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 19. You see, our purpose is connected to our freedom. And Paul says, for though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. Slave? To win as many as possible. 
To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak. To win the weak. May we as a church community be comfortable with our weakness so that when people who are weak come in here and they say, these are my people. These are people who are at peace with their pain. These are people who are real and authentic and don't just proclaim a victory or a, a conquering nature, but they're actually present and real in the moment and aware of where we sit these days. You see, I think the church has become preoccupied with a heaven and hell that sits outside the time and space we live in. And then if you ask the community what we do, they would often say that, oh, they just talk about the afterlife in there. Or they're just so friendly and positive all the time. But what if we can grapple and wrestle with the heaven and the hell that sits here now on earth? What if we could be so aware of the heaven and hell that sits inside of this community, the very one we are planted in? What if we could take responsibility for the hell that people go through in their everyday lives and we can bring heaven into spaces and places that require it? What if it could be a thing for now instead of just a thing for then? Got a bit of carried away on that one. <laughs> to the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might have saved some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessing. If your life is disconnected to the gospel, you are serving yourself. And there's grace for that. But you can't stay there. If your life is disconnected from community and you just want to experience and worship God by yourself, you are worshiping yourself. God is meant to be experienced, loved, adored, celebrated in the context of community. It is where we can self-regulate and adjust ourselves. It is where we can sit around a table and say that today I am putting on the new man, the true self, every day of my life because community helps me readjust. It helps me to realign. It is not just there to pat me on the back and cheer me when things are going well. It is there to lift me when things are going rough. Where are you this morning? Are you in a place where you can embrace your failure? Are you in a place where you have community around you that doesn't just celebrate you when it goes well and disappears when things are rough? Or are you in a place that says, I am ready to engage in a community that is here for me in the good times and the tough times. And I am willing to serve in the purpose of God, which means that the greatest blessing would be to align with God's plan for this world and not my own. The beauty is, the wonder is, the grace is, the, the glorious discovery is, 
And for those who have lived it out, and I look at Terry and I can see the joy of the Lord is your strength, brother. But I can see that those who live for other people have the greatest level of satisfaction. They have the greatest level of accomplishment when they walk into the room and they know that they are busy with something eternal, that they are not locked into the economy of this world, into the idolatry of self, but that they're released into the kingdom of God where things count more than just what you have in your account or the type of couch you have or the type of coffee table you build or whatever you have, that, that God redefines your purpose in such a way my friends, <laughs> I'm going to choke, that you are the greatest beneficiary of the good news. But man, it's going to mobilize you and it's going to change your life and it's going to be like a good session in the gym. It's going to hurt, but you're going to see the results one day. That's good news. That we're not left to our own. I'm excited about failure. <laughs> I can read it like Paul reads it. Like, bring it on. Bring on the failure that the world says is failure. Because in that, I can subdue the way of the world. I can resist it. Scripture says, resist the devil. Don't assist the devil. Am I right? <laughs> and the devil works in the smallest things in our own egos. He, he finds a foothold in the context of what we think is important and our opinions and our successes and the things that position us in life, that is where the enemy finds its foothold. It's not, it's not in the life of private confession. It's, it's not in the life of living for others. Man, if you live for others, I promise you're the most dangerous person in this world for the devil because you are not in a place of self. It is in isolation. It is in separation. It's an alienation where the enemy finds a foothold in your heart. When you think that you are better than others, when you think that you're building a kingdom, but it ends up being your own kingdom. And brothers, I've been there. I've started to run a business. I've walked in the political circles. It's a dangerous space if you don't understand your inbuilt identity that you are here to serve because it isolates you. It elevates your ego to a place where you think that you are important to this world. And we have to resist it. Paul almost goes as far as he says, my true, my true life, come on, is the anointed one. And dying means gaining more of him. To live is not important. To die is gain in other translations. So here's my dilemma. Each day I live means bearing more fruit in my ministry. What can I do? <laughs> it's just fruit. Yet I fervently long to be liberated from this body and joined fully to Christ. But you see, that would suit me fine. But the greatest advantage to you would be that I remain alive. You see, we are not of this world, but we are in it. And we're not in it to become like it. We're in it to change it. And we're not changing people. We're changing principalities and powers. We're shifting things on earth as it is in heaven. That this is our playground. Do you get that? That you are here for a reason and it's not one of comfort. And it's not one of earthly satisfaction. But it calls you to your true self. And life is a way of reminding you of who you truly are. May we be in a place this morning where we embrace failure in a different way. We surrender control, we serve His purpose, 
and we subdue the way of the world. May we this morning as we take communion, meditate on 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 to 10 again. That Christ lives in me. My grace is always more than enough for you, even in your failure. And my power finds its full expression through your weakness. So I will celebrate my weaknesses. Come on, church. For when I'm weak, I sense more deeply the mighty power of Christ living in me. So I'm not defeated by my weakness, but delighted. For when I feel my weakness and endure mistreatment, when I'm surrounded with troubles on every side and face persecution because of my love for Christ, I am made yet stronger. For my weakness becomes a portal to God's power. I pray that this morning as we take communion in this next song, we have a prayer, a benediction, a blessing over you at the end. But I pray that as you take communion, that that's very physical thing that you ingest this morning. It resembles the body and the blood of Jesus the Christ. It would not just realign you to remember Jesus, but to realize that the Christ in me, the very power, the indwelling presence of God is the thing that changes my purpose in life. It changes the perspective I have of failure this morning. And that we would enter this week and we would enter future failures in a way where we can discern very quickly is this, is this the false me that's experiencing failure or the true me? That is this a failure that needs to occur to awaken me to the grace and the glory of God? Or is this a failure that destroys my very identity. And if it is, that I need to subdue the way of this world because it's not about achievement. It's about resurrection. Father, I pray that this morning, we as a community would become aware of your very nature in us and your purpose through us in this world. Yes, we are more than conquerors in our spirit. Yes, we are victorious in Christ. But that does not divorce us from a world that sits in a bunch of pain and failure and disappointment. It doesn't divorce us from the fact that we are here for a reason. And it is to live above practical failure is to draw us into spiritual significance. Father, I bless this group of people and I thank you that as we take communion this morning in the next song, that we can realign ourselves to the true selves found in Jesus the Christ. We pray it. Amen. Amen. Please help yourself to communion. We will continue to worship straight after that.